Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Jeremy, I'm, I'm a little upset that you said that that money was for Eric. I was excited. I, uh, yeah, you got him excited. Now we're going to have to deal with that at the elder meeting. Uh, anyway, uh, this month in August, we are, uh, we've had uh, a guest preacher last week. We had Dr. Luke Bobo. Um, and this month we're covering, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin wrote a book. It's called Confronting Christianity. And certainly she's not the only one who has done this, but it's a very good book on tw- uh, 12, is it 12? Yeah, 12 hard questions that Christians should have to face. Uh, and... Um, and so we want to deal with those. Um, we don't want to deal with those in a defensive posture. We don't want to deal with those from the position of saying we have to be right. Uh, we want to deal with these from a position of humility, that this could strengthen our faith. Not that this has to make us defensive or more defensive, but this can strengthen our faith. This can help us ask questions not only about what is Christianity about, but, but what do we truly and fully believe, and how should the gospel transform us? Uh, and this morning, uh, I'm really excited. Somebody asked if, if Ricky Gervais was preaching for us, and I'm sure you've had that before, Mark. Uh, and no, but his accent is so much better uh, than, than Ricky Gervais. But Mark Ryan uh, is, and I'll have you go ahead and come on up. Mark Ryan is the director of uh, the Francis Schaeffer, uh, Francis Schaeffer Institute at... Um, Covenant Seminary, and he also, I'm sure you teach some classes, New Testament theology, things like that. All kinds. All kinds. Uh, Mark is one of the best people I know for book recommendations. Uh, that's not, and that's not a low comment. That's a high comment. Uh, he reads a lot. He has uh, great wisdom and insight, uh, and uh, I'm really excited for Mark to be here this morning uh, to teach us, to help us learn and grow, and, this, and Mark's topic uh, well, I'll let him introduce him. Introduce it, but let me pray for you, and uh, we'll get going. Thank you, Jesus, for your bride. Thank you for a place that we have to work out some of these questions together. Uh, thank you that you did not leave us alone. Not only did you send the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, but you gave us community to teach and form and shape and. Uh, commune together and have a friend when we feel lonely and have a place where we can come with our wounds and our hurts uh, and with our questions. Uh, and so I am grateful for that. I'm grateful for Mark, uh, his, uh, his diligence as a learner, uh, as a, uh, his desire to know you and trust you and learn how to convey your truth in a very, very, very difficult time, not only to uh, unbelievers, but also to believers, uh, that we would uh, know you and trust you all the more. So, Jesus, we ask for your presence here. We know that this is a promise you've given us, uh, and I pray you would be with Mark and with our hearts and our souls during this time uh, that, our, that we would be open to hearing what you have to teach us. So we ask for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Trey. Thank you, Refuge. It's a delight to uh, be invited to be with you here this morning. It's a delight to know that churches in our local area are, in fact, tackling and picking up on the tough questions that we are asked with greater and greater frequency. Uh, I would expect that many of you, as you've begun your way through this series, are already hearing echoes of these questions in daily life, whether in the media, whether in the coffee shop, uh, whether through the high school teacher, wherever you are, learning to give a word back for the hope that is within us is increasingly 
a part and parcel of being a disciple in our 21st century context. Uh, the question that is mine to tackle is, doesn't religion lead to violence? I don't know what I did to get offside with Trey that he would give me this topic, but doesn't religion lead to violence? Now, straight off the cuff, I need to say there's good news and bad news right here with this talk. Uh, the bad news was last night, this was still a two-hour sermon. <laughs> the good news is, earlier this morning and on my way here, I'm confident we can whittle it back and keep it within constraints. So I'll do my best and you pray for me along the way. Doesn't religion lead to violence? Barely out of the starting blocks of the Bible. Just a few short steps beyond the opening of Scripture, we already find the first act of religiously inspired violence. Genesis 4, 1 to 16 records the first act of murder committed by a follower of God. The first act of murder occurs in the context of worship and results in the slaying of a fellow worshipper and family member. This initial act of religiously inspired violence is shockingly deliberate, obstinately refusing of grace, and not only ends with the taking of a life, Abel's, but casts forward the ugly shadow of strife and violence over generations to come, including our very own. This murder gives birth to fear of violence. It gives birth to boasts of violence and to many, many additional acts of violence. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother named Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crop as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift. He did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must master it, not let it subdue you. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel 
and killed him. Afterwards, the Lord asked Cain, Where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know. Cain responded, Am I my brother's keeper? But the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You are cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, so many questions arise from this text. So much sadness, confusion and violence has escaped from this first act of murder. And Father, we still live in its shadow, surrounded by violence, exploitation, war, disregard for human persons. Oh, Father God, help us this morning as we take up this difficult topic. Give us ears to hear from you and hearts to follow in the distinctive way of Jesus. Oh, how we need your help, your wisdom this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as mentioned barely out of the starting blocks of Scripture, barely beyond the first few chapters, and already we have found the first act of religiously inspired violence. For those like Christopher Hitchens, this is just part and parcel of the Bible's witness to and warrant for trafficking in humans, for ethnic cleansing, for slavery, for indiscriminate massacre. For Hitchens, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. It is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry. Others are lining up to agree. ABC broadcaster Paul Harvey held that most wars are fought over religion. Actor Gwyneth Paltrow states, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. It's what separates people. More people have died because of religious conflicts than any other reason. Biologist Richard Dawkins explains, religion Belief in God can be positively harmful in various ways. Obviously in causing wars, which has happened often enough in history, and in causing people to do great ill to one another because they're so convinced that they know what is right. Anything goes. You can kill people who are wrong. Gore Vidal maintains more people 
have been killed in the name of Jesus Christ than in any other name in human history. For my non-Christian friends, I suspect for yours also, this is a no-brainer. For many of your work colleagues, for many of those in your social circles, of course religion leads to violence. It's patently obvious. Linger long at the work cooler, hang out at the after-work office gathering, visit with a mixed group in your home, and sooner or later you realize that one of the most common charges against Christianity is that it stimulates believers to kill and to torture in the name of their creed, either in order to spread Christianity or to keep fellow co-religionists in line when they're tempted to stray from the faith. Typically, this violence is held to be sanctioned by the Bible itself. In Genesis, Exodus, certainly in Joshua and Judges, and perhaps most astoundingly of all, even in the New Testament in Revelation. This biblical material was then applied, so the story goes, to the pagans of the Roman Empire. It was then brought to full force in the Crusades. The Inquisition, the extermination of Native Americans, the introduction of African slaves in their place and in the Holocaust. So, does religion lead to violence. A chorus of contemporary voices are screaming, absolutely, it does. What's your reply to your co-workers? What do you say to friends who posit this question at your dinner table? What's my response this morning? In the brief amount of time that we have together, and in very broad outline, my response, one I hope you can draw from and utilize, runs as follows. Does religion lead to violence? Yes, sometimes it can. No, it doesn't have to. So we ask, What's really going on? Let me restate that. Does religion lead to violence? Yes, sometimes it can. No, it doesn't have to. And so we ask, what's really going on? Now, the truth is there are many ways one could address, speak back to this question but I've chosen this broad outline for a few reasons. First, I think it does justice to the sheer complexity of the topic in front of us. This kind of layered answer is the most honest answer I can give in a short amount of time. Second, I think it's better than some of the simplistic uh, answers I sometimes hear. Answers that tend to deny or show ignorance of historical reality. Answers that unconvincingly shift the blame 
or answers that naively concede and thus view Christianity as hopefully entangled in violence and thus a total sham. Third, as noted, I also hope, and I answer this way, that you might think about this question, organize your thoughts, and be able to give a word back to your own circle of friends who may ask you. So, no fancy homiletic outline, but hopefully an honest one. Not a standard expositional sermon, but I trust a topical treatment of a hot issue that many of us will be and have been asked to speak to. So here we go. Does religion lead to violence? Yes, sometimes it can. Affirming this is simple honesty. At its most basic, where you find people, sooner or later you find war and other forms of violence. And since most people today, 84% of the global population, in fact, identifies as religious, so religion and violence are often intertwined. In truth, every major religious group has had some association with horrible acts of violence. And most of these appeal to sentiment and rhetoric. For centuries, practicing Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, and Buddhists have been found to be less than peace-loving and implicated with appalling deeds. Intriguingly, polytheistic religions have also persecuted and killed in the name of their religious expression. And as subjects of various anti-religious movements and governments have sadly learned, secular ideologies are also no guarantee of a safe haven. On the contrary, consider the slaughters of communism. As a political scientist who spent his career studying the data and violence and war has observed, of all religions secular and otherwise, that of Marxism has been by far the bloodiest. Marxism has meant bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal prison camps, and murderous forced labor, fatal deportations, man-made famines, extrajudicial executions, and fraudulent show trials, outright murder and genocide. Recognizing that every major religion and even various anti-religious ideologies have led its followers to commit acts of violence does not let us as Christians off the hook. We still have to give an account for our sins and misdeeds. Philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer once summarized those misdeeds this way. The fruits of Christianity were religious wars, butcheries, crusades, 
inquisitions, extermination of Native Americans, and the introductions of African slaves in their place. Schopenhauer is here operating reductionistically, but even so, we do need to recognize that such historical actions were sometimes justified by appeals to the Bible. And such were carried out by practicing Christians and their professedly Christian nations and governments. Although there is a need to nuance and look much deeper at these charges, the fact is, Christianity has been complicit in these things. This is not the time for a deep dive, an examination of specific allegations and atrocities, but it is important for us to honestly acknowledge and assess both the good and the evil of our Christian history. If we wish for others to take seriously our Christian claims and the Christian ethic as a way beyond troubles and violence that besets us and characterizes our world, then we must face up to our complicity, past and present. We must look and note and acknowledge the violence of varying sorts, degrees, and durations. Without doing so, any Christian claim to moral goodness, any Christian direction towards human flourishing will likely fall on deaf ears. Our first task, if you will, is to name our failings, to address and redress them, not to excuse them. We must also take to heart the observations of our critics that religion can act as a justifier and as an amplifier for hatred and violence. And so we must strive to work against human differences becoming further occasions for war. There's a call here embedded in this for a future generation of church historians. We would do well to counter the continued misrepresentation by the secular press. I hope you realize that when it comes to coverage of religious violence, the secular press is notoriously truncated, decontextualized, and often ill-informed. We must be the ones to examine charges against our faith with academic rigor and with spiritual sensitivity, such as would lead us to repentance, where repentance is warranted, and to rebut the charges where they are trumped up and falsified. For those of you feeling a little uneasy, those of you a little concerned by what sounds like a very concessionary note, let's move to this second step. Let's recognize that while it is simple honesty to name Christian complicity, that is not the whole of the story. So does violence lead to religion? No, it doesn't 
have to. As I trust we recognize this morning, as much as there has been Christian complicity with violence, there has also been costly, concerted, repeated and substantial Christian effort towards mitigating and resisting violence. As much as violence would erode Christian credibility, many Christian uh, people have drawn upon their faith to end violence. Literally millions of Christians over two millennia have been moved by their faith to love and to serve others, to stand up for the well-being of others, to sacrificially give of their own resources, including their own lives, to push back against suffering, against violence, against exploitation of whatever variety. Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof agrees with this assessment he wrote just a few years ago in the opinion column of the New York Times that evangelicals are disproportionately likely to go to the front lines at home or abroad. In the battles against hunger, malaria, human trafficking or genocide, they are some of the bravest people you will ever meet, like conservative Catholics who are similar in so many ways. There are Christians who truly live their faith. And he adds, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those who risk their lives in these ways. What is it that enlivens and enables Christians to truly live their faith? to resist violence, to work against it? What common practices and priorities motivate and give rise to a form of Christianity that achieves what Cain in Genesis 4 could not? The embrace of grace in the face of anger, dejection, strife, and thus the repudiation of violence. Once again... Time limits us from taking a deep dive, but three things stand out. Three things serve to subvert a Christian's turning towards violence. First, considering Scripture as a whole helps to overcome violent interpretations of particular texts. Consistently reading the Bible as a single unified story with awareness to and sensitivity of its continuities and discontinuities has long helped Christians to avoid baseline mistakes. For example, while biblical history is full of tales of war and full of troubling activity, a consistent and repeated reading of the Bible reveals that much of what is recorded therein is reportage and not actually commanded and, in fact, often condemned. We don't just read off the face of the page. We don't just draw a straight line from there to now. Similarly, 
A consistent reading of the Bible as a single unified story reveals a series of shifts. A shift from the people of God as a nation state to the people of God as a spiritual entity composed of people from different nations. And another corresponding shift from physical warfare to spiritual warfare. The upshot of this kind of reading has been to rightly discern that Old Testament wars, like those associated with Israel's conquest of the land, are unique to that redemptive period. They are no justification for practicing violence today. Also, a consistent reading of the Bible as a unified story reveals that even although we live in a time of spiritual warfare with real enemies and real impediments, Christians are not to exercise violence in the promotion of or the protection of the faith. Reading the Bible in this kind of informed and careful and attentive way has long led the people of God to resist and to stand against the violent application of various texts. Here's a second practice priority. It's clearly related to the first, and it's this. The cultivated familiarity with and practical commitment to the teaching of Jesus and the way of life he modeled. Again and again throughout history, Christians have seen in Jesus Christ the very epitome of non-violence. They have recognized in Scripture that Jesus overcomes his opponents not with coercion, not with a physical sword, but with the sword of his mouth, with verbal power, with a commitment to truth spoken and lived out. They have learned, they have heard him teach, they have seen him demonstrate radical love conquering evil through his own death on a cross and calling those who would truly follow him to appropriate his victory in their own lives by faith, with humility, through prayer, as demonstrated in service towards others. It's been noted by those who've cultivated this kind of familiarity with the ways and the words of Jesus that even when Jesus' work is depicted by way of violent imagery, such as we see throughout the book of Revelation, for example, that even here, traditional apocalyptic imagery is transformed by Christological perspective. The slain lamb is the interpretive key to understanding the violence of Revelation. For at every juncture in the story, where good triumphs over evil, a closer examination shows that that victory is finally attributed to Jesus by way of surrendering his life. Christians throughout history 
have given serious attention to the words and the way of Jesus. And this has changed them and kept them from engaging in outrageous violence. Third, another subversive reality is a commitment to carrying forward the very best of Christian history. Without glossing over real harm done, it remains part of the record of Christianity that it has also been a rich source of credible good. When the celebrated African-American clergyman and civil rights leader Howard Thurman was still a student, and when he was asked by a Hindu scholar how and why he as a black man in America, would identify with Christianity given its complicity and entanglement with slavery, Thurman delivered an answer. Five hours long. An answer that began with Christ, but then took into account the multitude of exemplars, those Christians who acted humanely, Generously, kindly, affectionately, altruistically, unselfishly, charitably, and frequently on behalf of those who lacked power, privilege, status. Whether through openness to slaves, gladiators, women and children in its early centuries, through staying behind in times of disaster and plague and creating places where the sick and the poor could be cared for, through their presence as doctors, nurses and chaplains on the front lines of notorious conflict, through hiding Jews from the Nazi war machine, through providing the rationale for defending the integrity of indigenous persons and preserving their cultures, through agitating against slavery and working for its abolition, through aiding the homeless, visiting the imprisoned and the shut-in, through relieving oppressive condition and elevating others through publishing, encouraging literacy and sharing education, evidence that religion does not have to turn violent is found in the bulging record and the innumerable number of instances of Christians acting and following in the way of Jesus. All to say, well, we must not forget, we must not minimize Christian failing, neither ought we forget nor diminish the helpfulness and the heroism of millions of Christian believers rich and poor, named and unknown, who exposed themselves to violence, yet resisted violence, who worked to elevate the lives of others, even at the expense of their own lives. Does religion lead to violence? I've acknowledged that it can, but I've now added that millions of Christians are driven by their faith to love and to serve others, to limit and to put an end to violence. And so, we're really forced to ask, what's really going on? How can both of these aspects 
be true? How do both features of the historical and the biblical record stand alongside one another? What's going on? Complicating, but not surprising, is the reality that Christian faith and many other faiths too have tended to be rather flexible forces in history. That is, while religion has inspired great goodness, religion has caved in to great violence. It has been too readily bent in the direction of evil and exploitation. Focusing once more on Christianity, it's fair to say that Christians, and I include myself here, have often failed to promote and embody the ideals of Jesus and his first followers. We've often allowed ourselves to join with anti-Christian and other biblically incompatible forces, leading us as crusaders to indulge in unnecessary slaughter, as missionary colonizers to disrespect native cultures, as clergymen to support tyrants like Hitler, and as majority Christians to endorse or to exhibit an indifference to slavery. Not as an act of avoidance now, but rather as a path toward understanding, we need to name the deeper reality of what is going on here. And the name I give this deeper reality is sin. The true culprit behind these manifestations of violence is not simply religion. That's too shallow a diagnosis. It fails to account for the abundance of non-religious violence, quite frankly. Rather, it is sin. As God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. You must subdue it. Do not let it master you. Religious violence is what happens where sin overwhelms and takes mastery of our deeper religious commitments. At the core of Christianity's self-understanding and its open proclamation to the world is that Jesus Christ is true God of true God that he stepped onto the stage of human history to reclaim and to restore deeply sinful men and women who operate in rebellion against him. Christianity is a religion of redeemed sinners. While different branches of the Christian family tree have different ways of theologizing about sin, and the experience of salvation, each recognizes that no Christian is perfect, that no Christian is without the taint, the pollution, the pull of sin. They agree that Christians are those who have only begun to put into practice in their own lives the grace of God. They've only begun to imitate the goodness of God in relation to others. They also agree that we cannot assume that every person who identifies with Christianity 
is authentically following Christ or is actively resisting sin and selfishness. And thus, all branches of the Christian family tree see the cross at the heart of Christian faith. Leading church historian Mark Knoll offers this rationale. The cross is the central symbol of Christianity because it both calls unbelievers to heed God's act of mercy on their behalf and because it reminds believers of their constant need to repent of their own sin. In these terms, we may say about the evidence of history that every self-sufficient effort by a self-confessed Christian to promote the kingdom of Christ by violence or by any other way that does not fully live up to the standards set by Christ himself is another hammer blow, nailing Jesus to the cross. At the same time, every self-denying act by Christians to promote the kingdom of Christ, by the sacrifice of self, by the offer of sharing power with the powerless, by giving dignity to the despised, is another sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thus, even if Christians have acted according to the higher standards of Christianity only inconsistently, even if Christians often contradict in their own lives the merciful holiness provided by Jesus Christ, there is nothing in that inconsistency which strikes down, which renders false the reality of Christian faith. More simply put, Christian complicity in violence is appalling, and a tragic anti-apologetic for our claims. But the Bible teaches us to expect moral failure from Christians. We are sinners, and for this reason, Christianity is tempted toward and sometimes succumbs to violence. Does religion cause violence? Yes, sometimes it does. No, it doesn't have to. And what's going on to cause this tension? The deeper issue is sin, which is crouching at the door, whose desire is to master us. Christianity squarely addresses this sin and uniquely overcomes it in Jesus Christ. My time has expired. There's so much more one could say and probably should say. I've barely scratched the surface. However, I do think Pastor Trey is going to follow up and I know that some of you are reading Rebecca McLaughlin's book, so there are some resources there. But perhaps as a final word, and returning to Genesis 4 where we began, let me simply remind us that there is an end to all violence. Let me depict this by way of a contrast. Whereas Abel killed, whereas Cain killed his brother Abel, Jesus was killed in the place 
of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Whereas Abel failed to offer a sacrifice pleasing to God, Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice. And whereas in the mercy of God, Cain received a mark such as would temporarily protect him from retaliation and death, Jesus was marked out to die from the very beginning and he will bring a permanent end to all death. To all violence. My prayer for each of us this morning is that we belong not to Cain but to Christ and that we have taken this Christ into our very selves by faith and that in the power of his might we would never pay back evil for evil but so far as it is possible we would live peaceably with all men. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, even as I bring this to a close, I'm so aware of how much more needs to be said. The whatabouts, the what-ifs, the how-comes, the whys. Oh, Father, give us grace right now in this moment to trust you. Give us wisdom as we think through this broad outline as a response. Most of all, Father, give to us your power, the power of the Holy Spirit, to live well, to be gentle, kind, patient, and peaceable in our own dealings with one another and with all whom we encounter. We are weak. We are vulnerable. We are fearful. We seek to justify our actions quickly. Father, we know that this sin lurks at the door of our hearts, and we ask again and afresh that that sin would be paid once and for all, in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. Forgive us and help us, we pray, in his name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.